Welcome to Cross Train, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. We're your hosts. I'm Matthew Thompson. I'm Tanner Higgins. And I'm Mason Simmons. This is a, a very special week. Eat, eat. This is, I think we've had a couple weeks like this before, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. So I'm just going to assume that the listener knows, and I'm going to assume you two know. And I'll look it up in my own time. Maybe I'll edit it in. Probably not. But we've had a few episodes that it just seems like they have an importance behind them that, that needs to be respected. And almost it almost feels like we don't have permission to goof around, you know? But this being a podcast, and we're, we're our own bosses, we can do whatever we want. Hold up, though. The, the thing is, in the last episode of talking about aliens and the Mark of the Beast had our most listens. And so I think people want... Aliens! Yes. So... We're going to talk about aliens and stuff like that, right? No. no? Okay. We're, we're, we're going to be a little more Close. serious. We're, <laughs> we're still talking about science, but this this is the kind Not of science that you can have a general, general, genuine theological discussion about. We're going we're to put our serious hats, not our tinfoil hats, on this week and talk about science and its relationship with religion. So what is the serious hats? Just, I'll just, I'm an honest question. What, what, what do serious hats look like? Uh, Sherlock Holmes' hat. Fedoras? No. no. Oh, man. Not fedoras. <laughs> no. Man. And you get your neards going on? No way. No. No way. It's like the, the Sherlock Holmes multi-brim hat. Oh, uh, mm. is it the Deerstalker cap? It's a Deerstalker cap. I don't cap. know the official name yeah, for it. Yeah, it's a Deerstalker stalker cap. Okay. So there's your useless information. There. Serious hat. Or, or you shankas. <laughs> yeah. I don't have my big old pop with me, though. So. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to... We're gonna, wax philosophical and scientific and theological in this episode and this is uh, an episode that my expertise fly directly out the window so i look forward to learning a lot from you two because hot dang are these a lot of notes that i did not write <laughs> well and i think that's one thing that needs to be said too is that like you know you don't have to be gung-ho for each biblical topic or any topic within the realm of conversation to have a significant uh, significant knowledge and talk about because I mean you can know just a little bit or not really care or have or like I don't know much about eschatology in that sense but then someone else might or someone or Matthew has a lot of uh, knowledge behind the laws in the Old Testament and the Tanakh and stuff like that and I don't and so I think each one could have expertise and then I think me and Mason we're not scientists, and I want to I want to make this very clear right up front, is that we are not scientists, but we are men of science that enjoy scientific things. I mean, I have a science degree. Is that something? Oh, well, science legitimacy. degree, legitimacy. I mean, that's something. I don't, yeah. it's not much. It's not a doctorate. But I, I think that's like what something. they call in the business clout. Clout. <laughs> and and plus too, I mean, a, a paramedic in the sense does work in a realm of, of scientific oh, avenues. So, I mean, we both have scientific backgrounds Backgrounds, and that we have toes in the water, toes in the sand. I'm not a scientist. I just play one on a podcast. <laughs> well, but we're not, we're, we're basically laymen in the sense when it comes to the scientific community. We're not those that are putting out these new theories and these new ideas and, and solving equations and discovering new life forms and yada, yada, yada. We just love science. Are yeah. you discovering life, new life forms? I'm not discovering new life forms. I do have some crazy theories that nobody's, I've not talked Dude, about Dude, I love theories. About. Well, we can talk about this after the episode if yeah. we have time. So. Heck, so, it might even become part of the episode. No, Who knows? No, this oh, is oh, way okay. too old right. people say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Or are you calling our listeners not dumb? Huh? Calling our listeners dumb? No, yeah. I think he's calling the listeners smart and they don't want to put up with the dumbness. Oh, that he yeah. is. <laughs> 
But uh, I think a good step one for this episode would be to establish, like, what what is science in its basest form? So let's kick it off with that. I'm not the authority, so one of y'all take over here. <laughs> so I want to get out of the way the definition of science. What is science? Because we hear it all the time. You know, it's like science versus Bible, Bible versus science. It's like the Logan Paul Mayweather. If I put on your boxing gloves and let's go at it, you know. <laughs> Y'all think I'm not going to joke around in a serious episode. You're dead wrong. Um, Bring it on. What is science? So I actually got the top two definitions from Merriam-Webster. And they read, knowledge about the natural world that is based on facts learned through experiments and observations. That's the number one definition. Number two is an area of study that deals with the natural world as biology or physics. So studying and looking at testing things mm-hmm. in the natural world that we call Earth. Um, and this, I, if, I'm sure I've referred to this a lot in a couple of past episodes. I always say real science. When I say real science, this is what I'm saying, factual things that have been proven and observed. We hear a lot of theories and stuff like that. Like I, I might tell you guys about my theories and stuff. That's something I cannot prove, and therefore it is not real science. Mm-hmm. And so while it may have scientific backgrounds and meanings, it is not proven. A lot of theories are exactly that. They're, they are just ideas that are accepted and not proven. And so I will not refer to those as real science. Like two examples I would give in the fact that things that are in your definition of true science would be mathematical science because we know that two plus two is four you cannot make a theory that two plus two is five you could probably make up some kind of weird equation out there that could get there but yet factual science that do do through study and observation we do understand that two plus two is four but yet theory in the sense of science would say like gravity we understand gravity to a great extent but yet do we fully grasp the the conceptual mathematical stuff and the thing that affects of gravity and i think that's just in theory, yes, but yet we know a lot about it. So, I mean, you're someone that has a that has a science degree. So, when does the bridge come theory to factual? Um, so that's going to become things that you, like I said, you cannot test. You can actually test a lot of gravity. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so gravity for the most part is factual. The only thing I say for the most part is like black holes. Uh, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this because, I mean, <laughs> while a black hole is like a rabbit hole, it's a little bit deeper. Um, people will say that uh, we think, you know, that you cannot see an actual black hole because it absorbs all, all light. And so uh, to kind of simplify this is like, so we basically look at uh, a black hole kind of like if you stretch out a bed sheet and you drop a weighted sphere, some kind of heavy ball in the center of it. It's going to create that little dome that caves inward or whatever. And so what we will see, if you were to roll like a quarter or something like this, you also the little quarter machines like in the old malls and stuff where they would just go around for yep. like two minutes. Like that's what light would do. Light would go around the black hole, the black hole being the little ball in the center. And so actually, and there's some things about like time and stuff like that, but we're just going to talk, we're just gonna talk about like side, light yeah. for the moment and being able to actually see it. You are seeing the effects of the black hole because when you, if you see a picture of a black hole, they'll be like, oh, we have an actual picture of the black hole. No, you see the evidence of it. You see the mm-hmm. little outline, kind of like a, a solar eclipse, like we had a, in 2016, like how you could see the light poking around the moon and the sun and stuff, like kind of flaring out. That's what a black hole is going to do. It's going to have like a little ring of light on the outside, and it's where it is trapping it, 
and spinning it around it and like shooting it off in different directions. So if you've ever seen the movie uh, Interstellar, uh, the the where he is Matthew McConaughey is going into the uh, event horizon. That is what the picture of a black hole, and I think they actually got some scientists and actually got the accuracy of what a black hole looks like in that sense. But needless to say, let's back up a little bit. We yeah. went we went head first in pretty deep. Like I said, it's like a yeah. rabbit hole. You just so go in and <laughs> science you can get into to very deep. But here, I think we need to take the presupposition that God does exist. Okay, that's one thing that we're going to assume that God does exist. And so when we take this assumption, we want to know that God is a God that is interested in His creation. Correct. I, and I think that we're not deist where God just set things to be and has basically washed his hands of creation and he is actively involvement is actively involved with his creation. I think that most Christians would like to say that he is actively involved because I mean Christ, how more actively Christ can you get involved? involved. <laughs> Quite involved. Um, but like I've, I've made mention of this before, and I think this has come to the, the two two things that when it comes the the difference between scripture and and scientific reality, the natural science is that God reveals himself in two different ways. And I made mention of this before in the past, is that God reveals himself through nature, which is a general revelation, that everyone can see that he's revealing himself through nature, through observation, through scientific evidence, through uh, scientific theory, even talking about scientific theory. Uh, and then he also reveals himself even further, more of like underneath a, ma- a magnifying glass or a mi- microscope, is through special revelation, through scripture. And he reveals himself through t- spoken word. He reveals himself through the Son of God, through Christ himself. So both are seen through human t- interpretation. You have Scripture, the Bible, and you have science and nature. You have nature. And both are seen through human interpretation, through human eyes, and the study of them. And that is called science of nature, the study of man, or the study of science through man's eyes, and theology, study of God, study of God's word, through man's eyes. It's all about the interpretation of the way it is. And science, their main goal of science is to understand the physical reality. And I think there's no scientist out there, a, a legitimate scientist, that is there to not find the truth. Like they're out there to find that like find the truth and lie about it. There might be some ways that they have like some kind of like agendas that that, that they have uh, they find the truth and try to well bend the truth to fit to their own agenda per se. But yet no scientist, I think legitimate scientist out there is is there to lie about the things that they find. The same thing with a the- which theology, the main goal is to understand spiritual reality. And I don't think there's any true theologian that is out there to lie about the truth. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So these two these two concepts, and I think this is where like many atheists and Christians, they see them as a conflict of interest. And I think the one one thing with Christians in, in our backgrounds is they see science and religion as a, as a contrast. But if God is the author and creator of both nature and scripture, then there should be no fear in seeing that they harmonize with one another, that there should be no conflict between each other. They should, you know, speak well with each other so with that in mind like i know that you established uh, pretty well through what you said that uh, science and religion don't have to be enemies like they're they're yeah. supposed to be very close friends to each other like what what would you say are legitimate reasons that, and i say that kind of with an asterisk thrown on the end of it some some air quotes if you will like where do you think the conflicts between the two come from like is this all just people being scared of words that are too big to pronounce or numbers that are too complex to, to understand unless you take classes on it? Or uh, are there legitimate 
uh, roadblocks that need to be overcome uh, in terms of understanding that science and religion are in some ways one and the same. Because, I mean, science is able to exist because God created a complex world that takes a lot of effort to accurately observe the goings-on. So where, where do you think these conflicts arise, and are, are they legitimate? Do they need to be addressed, or is this all just hearsay? Mason, our local scientist? The way that people want to view science is that they think it is like just completely opposed of how God works, and that's not completely true. That's actually not true at all, um, because God, as we are very well aware, and I think all three of us will agree on this statement, that he made everything. (laughs) Everything came from him. So that means everything that you can see was is here because of him and so we can look at things and we're going to go more in depth in this but i'm gonna throw out just a little a couple of examples um like how we're made and how everything is just perfectly lined up and people want to say like oh like da, 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 like science says that we're scared of all of these other things because of all of these theories and that's the key word right there mm, theory, theory is like oh the big bang theory which we'll address here in a couple more minutes later on down the road but like oh like that just says like God doesn't do all this other stuff, and it's like, listen, you're you're trying to listen to man's word, just because somebody has a doctor in front of their name. I mean, I'm sorry, but that doesn't necessarily credit them to a lot of things. I mean, we can go to a, I mean, Tanner being a paramedic, he has probably seen a lot of doctors that are probably not very fit to be doctors, medical <laughs> doctors. <laughs> so I hate, to, I hate to say that, but you're not wrong. Okay, so I mean, it's the same way with scientists, just because that they have, you know studied all these terrible or terrible things they have studied all of these things and they come up with a terrible theory doesn't mean that that's true see that's one thing with when it comes to science is that because of there are theories and this is where i think the, the scientific philosophy because science what it comes down to it is that it starts in the very beginning with a question who are we where do we come from how did it all come to be? Where did it begin? And like these questions that arise, they're you know basically you know philosophers before there was a microscopes and telescopes and Galileo Galilei uh, noticed that there is a heliocentric uh, system instead of a, a geocentric system. Is that these questions? You know, uh, Plato and Aristotle talked about these questions, and then this is where like a lot of the things like. Uh, Paul, he he conversated with the, the philosophers at the time about like where we come from with a theological uh, standing. And so here's where I'm going to place where science kind of really can root in and where that you don't have to be a someone that looks underneath a microscope and have a degree in botany and, and paleontology and all this stuff that you can look at this and like this pertains to it. So there's something called... Uh, scientific philosophy that I think that we can kind of all answer these questions and it's like a yes or no type deal thing but yet it's a big implications so there's two arguments I'd like to present and it's called the first one is called the ontological argument and these are basically really intertwined with apologetics apologetics are proving that there is a God and proving and giving uh, philosophical answers and evidence that there could be a God out there and that he is involved. So the ontological argument, and I think this is a, there's a sim- simple ontological argument, and then there's one that I like to think about because it's kind of interesting, is the multiverse uh, construct of the ontological argument. So the ontological argument, it says, if God's existence is possible, then God exists. God's existence is possible, premise number two. And then premise number three, therefore, God exists. And so the possibility of God existing 
if everything is possible within the universe, if there is a possibility of something happening or existing, then that possibility does exist. And so this is where the multiverse construct comes into, comes into play. If there is a chance of a multiverse, because we don't know. I mean, that's just one of the things, you know, the, a theory. What is the multiverse for the listeners? Okay, so a multiverse is, is a theory that, like, our universe, you know, Milky Way, the, the Andromeda Galaxy, different. like there's a different universe where Tanner Higgins is, you know, has long hair. Different galaxy. A different, no, a universe. We're talking like a whole universe. Like a different reality. Different reality uh, other than. Wait, Mason, are you not up to date on your Marvel? I am. Come on. Multiverses are like prime Marvel. Yeah, yeah but that's the thing is. It's like when Doctor Strange is looking at all the Technically, the universe realities. is everything. So there is no really such thing as a multi-universe, but that's well, in the, well, in the sense yeah, of our science, Mason. Okay. I mean, that's what this that everything <laughs> in this reality. So the multiverse is a construct that there is a multiple reality, a uh, endless amount of realities based on different contingencies and decisions that I've made. I went down left on this reality versus I went down on the right side of this road on this reality. Made two different decisions, like a butterfly effect type of thing. So this is. There's no proof behind this. It's just speculation theory. So if this theory is 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 true, if there's a chance of a multiverse of endless contingent contingent universes, then the logic would reason that within one of these possibilities there is a maximally great being, aka God. So if the possibility is there of a maximally great being existing in one of these universes, then the second premise would say if this chance of a maximally great being exists in at least one of these universes, then that maximally great being, if he's maximally great, would exist in all of these universes. And the third premise would say, then the logic would reason, then this maximally great being exists in our reality, this universe. And so this is, you know, this is complete philosophy there is no scientific evidence this is just a theory a scientific theory of philosophy that starts in the very beginning of okay okay well there's a possibility of a maximally great being a god creator within our universe and i think this logic is sound in this sense okay so uh, just uh, i want to hit the brakes real quick yes. and reverse just a tiny tiny bit in case it hasn't been clear from what i've contributed to this episode so far i'm kind of operating on behalf of the listener because while science and theological discussion having to do with science does fascinate me, it is not in my wheelhouse. I'm not even an armchair expert on the matter. So I'm going to try to make sure that when y'all start confusing me, I'm going to assume the listener is also confused. <laughs> so I'm going to try to intercede on behalf and make sure that uh, no stone remains unturned. So, like I said, I want to reverse just a tad bit. Uh, earlier I proposed the question of, like, is science actually a problem uh, versus religion? And if not, then why? And from what I gathered from Mason's response, I think the answer to that basically was science is not a problem. It's fraudulent scientists that yes. are the problem. Okay, so I got a yes. So that, that is confirmedly the answer. Because you did give a, a, a very well-thought-out answer, but there was a lot to your answer. I just want to make sure that it could be boiled down so the listener isn't sitting here thinking, well, you didn't answer the question. Uh, you did, just with a lot of words. <laughs> so this continue, will be the only episode please. I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, this episode is just we call Mason Talks a lot. <laughs> But continue. I just wanted to make sure that, that that stuff didn't get lost in the yeah. in the noise. Okay. So the next argument for the scientific philosophy, I think this is where where the rubber meets the road, and where we can really talk about where did we come from. So the first argument, the ontological argument, it's mainly focused around is there a possibility for a god? And I think obviously as us as Christians, we would say undeniably yes. 
the possibility is there and it's true. It's it, it, the evidence is all around us. We see it. So, and the one thing that like Mason talked about, you know, the, the, the thing science is not uh, contrary to scripture, but yet when that science becomes fraudulent with the truth. And I know that me and you may disagree with this in this sense, because I've heard you say it before, like the difference between science and man-made science. So, Explain to me what you mean by man-made science. So man-made science is going to be exactly what I tried to tried to tell Matthew was that things that people will say that they have studied themselves and that they have evidence for, but there is no, like what I said at the very beginning, there is no tangible evidence as far as mm. seeing an observation or running an experiment and getting results. It is simply they have thought of an idea and based on a couple different, you know, maybe mathematical equations or a couple different, um, you know, biology things and just kind of intertwine them together like, yeah, this metaphorically could happen. And then they'll present that as, oh, this is most likely what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. like, no, that's not that's not what's happened. It's just a man or a group of people have come together and thought of oh well this kind of makes sense let's see what they do and it becomes widely accepted and it's so and, and this is one thing like I, I don't like that term man-made science because science in itself is a man observation of what God has done and so technically science is man-made per se it's the study of natural reality so the what you're talking about I, I agree with because I mean Richard Dawkins does it all the time and especially in his book the God delusion when he basically notices all these evidence of fine-tuned theory which we'll talk about in a minute and I think it's fantastic is that we see the evidence of God all around us but yet he just chalks it up with like well it's just by happenstance and happen chance and that we're just one of the possible failed experiments of reality that happened to roll the dice and we succeed. Okay, well let me try to explain it to me like explain it to you like this and we might be able to transition from this too. Um, if you're uh, okay with that. Um, man made. So I am saying that the humans are making the science like they are saying oh we believe this is what has happened and you're saying like right all science is man observed and that's that's the Mm -hmm. that's the difference we are of course observing it god has given us the only creatures on this earth with that type of conscience which is a miracle in itself yes it really is honestly have you seen people walking around walmart Low blow, dude. I, I mean, my pajama pants. I mean, come on. We, you know they're looking at telescopes in the night sky and uh-huh. thinking about these hard theories. But so th- here's my difference, though. We Sorry, have, guys. <laughs> here's here's my difference. We have the science that man themselves have tried to create, versus the science that is happening around us. Like you have said, it's all around us, and we are observing. We are seeing it instead of trying to create it. It's just kind of like in the sermon we had here a couple weeks ago when you got caught up there and you were told to make a man from Plato. You couldn't do it. You made a really good action figure. i got to give you that. That was a really good. You're welcome. I was, that I was, was very impressive. impressive. You're welcome. I was very impressed with that. But yet you couldn't give it life, could you? No. Man could not create life, but God can. And so that will take us all the way back to creation. And I'm if you're okay with that, we can move on to a little bit about what all happened at creation. Yeah. Okay, so talking about creation, creation of everything. I'm not talking about mankind. We go back to Genesis 1-1, and we see how God created literally the entire universe. Until then, it was just him, Jesus, and the Spirit chilling out. 
hey, we need something going on. It's just kind of dark and boring with us three. You know, whatever. But, I mean, that's just that's just how I like to what imagine. If the angels that's, existed, yeah. which is a whole different topic. But that's a whole different topic. <laughs> We're talking about Earth and okay. science. Anyways, our reality. Um, everything was created within those, and then you can debate this if you want. I ain't, I ain't going to argue with you. I ain't got the re- energy for this. The seven days in Genesis. Yeah, I can see that smirk. Let's put days in uh, some quotes, anyway, maybe. Hush. So we have the seven days of creation, or six days of creation, seven through the rest, whatever. We have the creation of the entire universe within this time frame. And the number one thing that, well, I'm going to wait on that. Within those days of creation, everything was made perfectly. It, To me, and like I said, this is where you can get into all kinds of arguments, everything didn't take billions and millions of years to mold perfectly to how we have it now. God designed it that way. Like I said, you can look at me in days all you want. I don't care. But the thing is, is that God made everything perfect. Everything came to be perfect. And it didn't just get there by happen chance. I mean, we didn't come from fish and stuff like that by happen chance. It, it, God designed things the way he wanted them to be. So here, here's what I'm talking about. So we have our atmosphere. We have our temperature. Let me, go, let me back up just a little bit. Because here's where I, w- I, w- I want to interject, and I'm not, like, we're not going to hear to, sit to do a debate, because in the fine tune of things, I know where you're going, and I 100% agree that it, everything is finely tuned. But, yeah, I think the, differ- the, the difference between a literal interpretation of a six-day, literal day creation and a 6.7.5 billion however the old old the earth is when it comes the difference between a seven day literal creationist versus a evolutionary creationist there really is no difference because the way that i'm an old earth evolutionary creationist saying that yes god provided the definition of a big bang which big bang needs to be defined a lot more properly than just a happenstance Yeah, What's to say that God can not set forth an action and be intertwined within a long process of time versus a six literal day time? If God is intervening even within a process of millions and millions of years of processing of evolution and stuff like that, he is still intertwining and allowing things to process in that way. It's the same God that intertwines and is effectively uh, intervening in today's time. So I think that the difference that I think that we need to make a distinction is that there shouldn't be a argument of the time frame, but more of an argument is God involved. Because if God's not involved, then God doesn't really matter. But yet he is involved, even within a evolutional theory if you're if in an in, in evolutionary creationist or a seven day six day whatever uh, a creationism it doesn't matter god is still involved and so i think it's more of like a god principle of being involved in his creation and so i i, I agree with w- what you're saying that he set the blueprints up for this finely tuned theory which a lot of uh, creationist and evolutionary creationists agree on is that everything is finely tuned because he is involved in every aspect of life because he is the creator of life i can't in good conscience let you say that you are an old earth evolutionary creationist 
without asking you to explain as concisely as possible how you can believe the earth was created over the course of several billion years while also reading Genesis and seeing the mention of days. I say this as someone who sort of agrees, but I just want to make sure that we don't just brush over mm-hmm. such a statement because yes. I know there are a lot of people listening that are like, hold up, what? So please, as, as concisely as possible, just explain how that's not heresy. Okay. So, okay, so it's not heresy in the sense of like what we said before is that we have scripture, which is a special revelation, which is God speaking the word of truth to man, through man, for man. And then you have general revelation through uh, nature and stuff like that. So the main principle here, and there's a hermeneutical principle called the uh, message incident principle, which saying that the message is the truth that God is sovereign, God is holy, uh, God is the creator of everything that is good, and God and humans are created in the image of God, that man and woman are fallen into sin, and that God judges humanity for the sin, sinful acts that they have done, and Jesus is coming to redeem them. So that, that's the truth of Scripture, and so that is the message that is being presented. The incident is by the way that it is being written in the views and the people, the brokenness uh, and, and, and the way that people are at that time in ancient history. And so it's basically the truth is, take it in the sense of like analogy of like water. The truth is H2O. It's the water. But the vessel such as the people that are being, that are writing the truth, Moses and, and uh Joshua and Paul and Luke and Micah and Jeremiah, all the people that wrote scripture, that the incident is, it could be an aluminum cup, it can be a metal cup, a plastic solo cup, it can be a glass bottle, it can be all these things. The truth is the truth. The message doesn't mean that it conflicts with science by the way that they perceive, the way that their observation and the way they perceived the truth of reality. So they didn't have microscopes and telescopes to see uh, what reality was, but yet God accommodated to their reality the way that they viewed the early ancient Mesopotamian view of creation to present the truth that God is sovereign, God is creator of all things, and God is good. So if you ask a creationist or an evolutionary creationist and a seven-day creationist, and you ask him what does the creation story between Genesis 1 and 3, what is the main reason for this story? The answer would be the same, that God created the universe, God is holy, what he did was very good. Man is made in the image of God. They have fallen, they suck, but one day there is a redeemer. The answer, the message is the same, it's just the incident, the way that it was presented, God accommodated through the people to get his message out. So let me try to boil down all those words. Yes, that, that, into that's a, a big can of worms. A, a layman's answer, and if I get this incorrectly, set me straight. I, I want to make sure that this is this is covered because uh, we gotta we gotta pay our respects to the subject matter. So what you're saying is the point is that God made the heavens and the earth. The time, strictly like in terms of God's power, is trivial. As long as, and I believe that Mason would agree with this, and well, I think everyone at this table agrees with this. As long as you believe that He could have done it in seven six days. You're good. But what you're saying, Tanner, is that it could have been made over billions of years, but it could be specified as days in Scripture because, I mean, keep in mind, Moses was writing all this stuff out. How hard would his brain fall out of his ears if God was like, over yes. the course of 2.5 billion years, I did this. Over the course of another 2.5 billion years, I did this. 
it was written in a way that was comprehensible to its audience. Is, yes. that, is that what you're saying? That, that's exactly what I'm saying because, because I mean, he, Moses doesn't have the capacity and doesn't have the, the, the resources and the knowledge to understand molecular biology or anything of theory of relativity yeah. or gravity because it would just blow their bonkers minds. It's the same thing with like, why didn't God reveal all the truth to John in Revelation? Because, to be honest, I think the truth would just blow his mind, so he had to speak metaphorically. But way that God presented to them that he accommodated, and I think that's the same thing that speaks the truth to us, is that God meets me where I'm at. You know, that he doesn't have to, I don't have to do all these set rules and laws and do all these things and to go to a certain place, and God's like, okay, I need you to meet me here. God accommodates to me. And the same thing with, like, ancient science is that he accommodates the truth and it accommodates to the people to reveal the truth that he is sovereign and that he cares for his creation. Okay, so one one final thing that I want to clear up before we, before we move on, because I don't want to spend the whole episode on this uh, subject, as interesting as it is. Um, I think that one issue that some people listening right now might have is they might be thinking, well, Tanner, if you think that, that God said this thing but meant another, God's lying. I think mm-hmm. that one can make the argument that God is not lying in the way that because just because God didn't explain that the plant life that he created needs to feed through photosynthesis doesn't mean that his plants don't need to feed. Yeah. It's not necessarily an omission. It's just a, uh, a dumbing down so Moses can understand. It's not him saying, I made it in, in six days. Not whereas he's hiding the truth, it's him simply presenting in a way that, that makes sense. Much yeah. like he's saying, I, I made all these animals and such in ways that you can't comprehend. So I'm just going to tell you that I made them. And you can observe and see things that way. It was yes. all broken down in a way that Moses could observe on a personal level. And that's why it was explained in that way. So here's a theological term. It's called inerrancy. So and I think that you know a creationist, Versus an evolutionary creationist, we still hold to a sense because I mean Mason, he's more, he is a creationist, and this is where we're. I, I know that this is either early on in the conversation or we didn't want to get into this conversation, but yeah, I think it's important to have that God's word is inerrant either way, and the reason why I, that that it is inerrant because the truth is the same, no matter what. That like I said, God is sovereign, God is holy, God has made all of these things, and it's like look at in, in the sense of like let's look at the story when Jesus talks about the mustard seed. When he talks about the mustard seed, he says, you know, this is the smallest seed that you can perceive. But in reality, it's not because one of the smallest seeds is like an orchid. It's almost a microscopic seed. So is the mustard seed the smallest seed that, uh, that, that, uh, that God has created? No. So was Jesus lying? No. He presented a, a, a parable, a story in the sense or an example to people that could understand it. He accommodated to their knowledge, their limit of knowledge, to present a story or an example that, no, the seed is the truth of the gospel that it will grow into the kingdom of God. So the message was the inerrancy. The incident, the message incident principle, was that he accommodated to the people to reveal the truth. So the inerrancy is the message. The problem that a lot of people get conflicted with is that the vessel that it was presented with is that they would rather have it in a glass cup versus a red solo cup, if that makes any sense. To close out this part of the podcast, I'll establish that we have a Mason as a, a young earther, we have Tanner as an old earther, and then we have myself, who uh, believes that a no God, earther. Exactly, it's, it's, it's we're living on the moon right now. Um, I I believe, or I choose to believe that um, 
God created the, the earth in six days, but he made it already several billions of years old because only God could pull off something that crazy. Yeah. So there you go. There, there's my opinion, but I won't explain it, so deal with it. Or are you just looking at me like whatever? <laughs> so let's backpedal just a tiny bit to uh, make sure that we get the con. There, there's a lot of subject matter being covered here. So we, we keep catching ourselves on, like, what, what have we talked about yet? What, have, what did we skip over? Whatever. So let's get on the topic of, of evolution. I mean, I'm kind of saying this because I may or may not just take this conversation and move it to a different part of the podcast. So if there isn't a clean area for me to do that, this is where we're going to talk about evolution, fellas. <laughs> I'm covering my butt. That's fair. I have to edit this tonight, so I need to, like, I need to make sure you. that I'm trying yeah. to make things easy on myself. So across or apart from the Big Bang Theory, trying to be anti-Christian, to me the number two may even be number one, honestly, uh, but I just have it on here a second, um, evolution. And so, of course, just like how I define science, everybody gets evolution and adaptation confused, and I must say it triggers me a lot. So here is a defolu- definition of evolution. And this is from Oxford. Yeah, look at me using multiple resources. I know how to take notes, kind (laughs) of. So a definition for evolution is the gradual development of something, especially from a simple to a more complex form. And how I have heard it put in very, very layman's terms, if that was not uh, down enough, uh, people in, uh, at tech will explain it like this all the time. Evolution is no more than a change over time, a change of something over time. Are you just are you listening? Okay. Okay. Oh, I thought you had something to say. I was going to let you go ahead because I had a break. I'm right noting there. down timestamps. <laughs> so my big thing about evolution is post Noah's Ark and the Flood. And that's because we see the two of a kind come aboard the ark. And from there is how we get all of the organisms, at least mammals, birds, you know, all that other good jazz. Not aquatic animals. Yeah, not aquatic animals. Everything other than aquatic animals, though, had to be on board that ark. And so how do we get all of these different species on there? Well, see, that's the thing. And I don't know if, first of all, if nobody's been to the ark in Kentucky, I highly recommend it. I mean, they've done a lot of research and a lot of stuff like that. And if nothing else, it's just really cool to when you first show up, you see a giant boat just sitting in the middle of the city. <laughs> it's it's a really cool site. But they do have a lot of information in there. And you can, like I said, you can take, uh, take what you want from it. Uh, but th- you can tell they've put some, t- some time into it. And one thing that I really got from it from when I was there that kind of, you know, just kind of opened my eyes is that there's no way they could have fit that many millions of mammals, birds, reptiles, you know, whatever other type of animals you want to talk about. There's no way they could have fit two of every single kind on there. There's no way. So what would have happened? Well, they could have taken two wolves or whatever, because we hear all the time of how dogs have come from wolves or whatever. Well, you can get all kinds of different species from dogs by interbreeding different dogs and we've already talked oh i don't know how this is going to get thrown in there we have will slash i don't know kind of talk about mutations a little bit throughout Mm -hmm. this and that's a part of what a lot of people will call evolution and so when i'm trying to say evolution from 
you know, a wolf to a dog. That is very, very, very similar species. I'm not trying to say people are coming from fish. Yeah. Because that's what a people from the uh, Charles Darwin theory will say is that uh, we have microorganisms coming up to be tadpoles, coming up to be uh, semi-aquatic animals with legs and feet and lungs. That's a big development, lungs. And then all of a sudden they lose their gills and now they're walking around land on all fours. And then, oh, here we go, you know, years and years later, now they're on two feet. And now, now we've got thumbs, and boom, now we have a conscience. It's, and that's not, that's not what I'm trying to say evolution is at all. That, to me, is what I would consider man-made So there's two science. different – well, that's, that's, that's totally talking about embryonic uh, evolution. That's a whole different topic in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, what you're talking about is more microevolution. Microevolution is the sense yes. of the definition of the changes within species normally over a short period of time. And so you can even see with this within the past 200 years of the evolution of dog breeds within certain dog breeds within like uh, uh, like pit bulls and terriers that you can see pictures from 1900s that it looks drastically different than the terriers and the and the pit bulls that we have today due to evolution and these micro evolution examples of dog breeds and like and. Uh, Charles Darwin, when he went to Galapagos Islands, he noticed the, the, what, what we call now the Darwinian finches. That's a product of microevolution, a short period of time, due to uh, such things. And these are the, the, the scientific terms or whatever. Is the fa- it's affected by natural selection, sexual selection, artificial selection, genetic drift, and, genetic, and, and gene flow. All these surrounding things. And also you got to gen, uh, geographical locations because if you put – a species like a thousand years ago or whatever onto islands such as Hawaii that over time they are isolated and they don't, they're not a product from certain change and they breed within a short within a small island versus a big main island such as the states or the continents or whatever that their evolution microevolution of change is limited to the evolution that they have within a larger body of breeding and gene flow pool and natural and sexual selection in that sense and so when we say microevolution, when you, I just think the word evolution is just perceived of like it's bad, yeah, big bang, bad, evolution, evil, evil. It, and it's not. And so, what I like to look at is Pokemon evolution. <laughs> but it, to me, it's the simplest way I can explain it. And because I, I mean, this is something I understood as a you know little kid playing Pokemon. They're like, oh, you let little kids playing Pokemon with evolution? Okay, shut up and listen. Karen, <laughs> Karen, calm down, and we'll get on another Karen rant. Satanic panic. Pokemon edition. <laughs> you thought death metal was evil. Pokemon. Look at these pocket monsters. So here's the thing, and this goes exactly with what you're talking about. Like, and I'm gonna go on a nerd talk too, so y'all get over it. Um, like we have a little Charizard, right? Just a little dude, tiny dude, whatever. Charizard ain't tiny. Or Char. Have you? When's the last time you read Charizard. a Pokédex, Mason? Char- or I'll challenge your fan. <laughs> yeah, I'll right. challenge you. Who am I thinking of? Charmander. 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 Yes. Goodness. Charmander. Come on, Pete. Come on. I'm thinking of the little you're, action figures. You're better than this. Man. We got the little Charmander. I'm sorry. You're right. You Way to hold me in place because I would have smacked myself if I'd went back. Pikachu and never evolved. So, I mean. Actually, he does. Well, Raichu. he does. To and Pete. he evolved from but, Pikachu. But, uh, uh, Come on. And he evolves with a. Well, I'm talking about like uh, Ash's Pikachu. Like. Oh, yeah. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't evolve. Well, that's because he has to have a Thunderstone. But anyway, that's different. Anyways, continue. continue. <laughs> we have a little Charmander, right? Like a little dude with fire on his tail. He's really cool. Well, you know, level him up or whatever game you're playing, you know, whatever. He goes to a little Charmeleon. 
Yes, I know. Make sure you're getting right. I was, I was He's a little bit bigger, dude. His fire on his tail is a little bit bigger. He's got some sharper claws now, right? Yeah, he's got like his whatever's coming out the back of his head to look more like a little dragon or whatever. And then, you know, level him up a little bit more, whatever. He goes to a Charizard. It's freaking dope. Now he gets, you know, some wings and stuff like that. And, you know, his claws are huge. He's got these huge feet and stuff like that. His tail is even longer. Like, it's like he's super strong now. It's the same thing with like a, like a bear species, like you said about if we throw if we were to throw black bears on Hawaii, what would happen? Well, they're either going to get different sized or they're going to grow some different attributes. Whether that be they're going to get some bigger claws to try to take down some stuff, or they're going to get smaller so that they can get faster and try to chase things. Now that doesn't mean they're going to go from whatever they are now, like four feet to a foot, mm-hmm. but they might go from four feet to three, three and a half feet. You know, they might start running, you know, 35 miles an hour instead of 25 miles an hour because they got smaller and lighter, but they're not going to start changing from a black bear to a polar bear. Charmander can't go to a Squirtle, to a Blastoise. It just can't happen, and I, this is where my nerd talk is coming in. But here, I, but that's how I like to view it. You can only go up within your limits, you know, within your species limits. Fish can't go into people. People can't. Don't look at me like that. People can't go uh, into these dragons. I can't turn into Charizard as much as I would love to. I can't. Mm-hmm. Then go fly away and burn stuff. <laughs> <laughs> turn into a Godzilla that can fly. But that's what, so. When I try to think of evolution, it, to, to anybody that I can relate, which is not very many people with Pokemon, but if I ever can, I try to look at it like that because you have to stay within your species. I put air quotes in there. Limits. You can only go within that. And what you are going into or upgrading to is not much. You know, we look at Charmander to Charmeleon. He's just really getting a little bit bigger, getting a little bit bigger claws. That's all he's doing. So all of this is said to illustrate the point from what I'm understanding, Mason, uh, that evolution is not this scary concept that makes the Bible irrelevant. So whenever a Christian hears the word evolution, they don't have to break out in a cold sweat and go, oh, i got to be ready with my Genesis scripture to prove this person wrong. Because, <clears throat> because evolution does not prove scripture wrong. If anything, the story of Noah's Ark gives you an example of how evolution functioned and functions within creation. How it's another yes. building block of God's creation that was, again, so perfectly thought out. Correct? Yeah, yeah. and so like, we can kind of apply this to humans, too as far as evolution goes is if we look back at the renaissance an average sized human was you know a little bit smaller than me and i'm considered short in today's standards i think what's the american size for a male five eight five nine five nine because that's me five I nine am, see i'm just five, I eight. Am average. five eleven boys uh, i'm short basketball player right <laughs> just kidding well see that's the thing though is like back in the renaissance you know your average person was you know just right above five feet or whatever now we have seven footers walking around like it's nothing, and I, I understand. Now I understand because I hit the mic. We'll do take three. Hurry up. Sorry, guys. You're good. Now I understand that there were giants because I mean we see that from scripture and stuff. We have some people that were larger. I mean that's just part of a mutation or whatever. But it's not as common as it is today when I can go down to the university. And I can see 10 people that are six foot six like it's nothing. You know, I can go to the basketball team and not see anybody under six foot. 
you know, they're all towering over me. But if I was to go back 500 years ago, 15, 1600s, you know, I would be considered tall. And one that I really like to point out in American history, uh, Abe Lincoln, six foot four, was huge for his time frame. That would be like us seeing a seven foot three guy. It just, it was not heard of. Now, like I said, we do have seven footers walking around, but nobody really goes above seven foot. Well, Abe Lincoln was that seven footer for them. Yeah. And and that's a, that's evidence of microevolution yes. due to uh, certain changes, and in, in, in a lot of it has to do with like the way that they lived and the health and the perspectives, perspective and the way that they viewed the way they did science and health and medical medicines. Stuff, yeah. yeah. Well, see, that that's time. the thing though. Like six four now is nothing. Yeah. Here in our church, we probably got a bunch of six foot four dudes. I, I'm sure. I don't know. I don't pay that much attention. In case anyone at home is thinking the same way that I think and thought to themselves when you were bringing up heights, uh, differences across time, I wonder how t- tall Yao Ming was. He's He was 7'6". Yeah. So, yeah, he's like the tallest dude I could think of. So there, there's your example of a, uh, mm, well, I'll, I'll say freak of nature. That, that is, I think that is by definition. That, so that, that's a, a good way to, to tackle the concept of evolution in a way that's compatible with uh, the Christian worldview. So here, here's a here's a statement, the question to be asked. So what if Scripture, Genesis chapter 1 through 3, it talked directly about evolution? What if it did not give a, a, a six-day literal creation? What if it talked about evolution in that sense of the way that science, the way that people have perceived like macroevolution, which gradualism and and catastrophism and stuff like that. What if that talked about creation in that sense? That I think it would cause a lot of problems because it would bring up the issue of why would God explain that in such strange specificity without talking about other things. Because the focus was not explaining like yeah. how this stuff works. It was explaining, I am God, and because I am God, I did this stuff yeah. because mm-hmm. as God, I can do this stuff. Oh, yeah. It's it's not God's responsibility, and it would not have benefited God or Scripture or the way that we interpret Scripture for him to explain a weird, specific area of how evolution works and then not explain the inner workings of anything else. That's for us to find out and worship God through the searching of those answers. Well, God is not a God of confusion, and I think at that time it would have been a big thing to be like, okay, God, you're confusing. I don't get you. I'm one to steer clear from something I don't get. And so I think that that's where I think over time we have seen the evidence of microevolution and have seen, seen the evidence of cosmology and stuff like that. And we have seen the evidence of things of God. And now that we have the capacity to understand and the knowledge of science and understanding of God a little bit in the natural world, that we can praise him and glorify him. Like, oh, God, man, you're magnificent in this way. And so what, I would like to transition, if it's okay with you, to transition. Yeah, the only thing I want to say is because I never actually – I said there was a difference between evolution and titties. So adaptation. Yeah, so I told the I said there was a difference between evolution and adaptation. I never defined adaptation. And so I want to show I want to point out the difference. Evolution is a change over time and evolution will occur over generations. It is not something that is done within one organism's lifetime. That is an adaptation. An adaptation is how if I start to be a carpenter, my hands become calloused. That is an adaptation that my body has done. But my calloused hands my, my tough skin 
will not pass through my generations because that is something my body adapted to over my lifetime. And evolution would be that, uh, you know, my family line or your family line grows to be broader shouldered and they grow to be taller. Like if we look at the pastor, he's a broad man. We can already tell that his son is a broad man. And so we can see that that that, that is an evolution from his family line. That, you know, just they are larger people. And so because of that, they have more strength than mm-hmm. I will. And that's just something that comes along. So the difference is adaptation over one organism's lifetime, evolution will occur over a generation, over generations. So the essence of that argument is Christians don't need to fear, like, the concept of evolution, adaptation, what have you. It's just that just because you might not understand the inner workings of these things doesn't give you permission to say that they're outright wrong because, again, you don't understand them. Because these mm-hmm. things do work in tandem with a Christian worldview. You just you got to do your homework on it. Yeah, yeah. adaptation seems to be a, a safe word or a bailout word when yeah. evolution comes into play, and then that's not the case at all. At least it shouldn't be. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the thing. It's like when the, the conversation, if, you, if we go back to the very beginning of this whole conversation, if science is the study of our natural reality and Scripture— is the is the study of the theological implications of the spiritual reality they should not they should never conflict with one another because one both of them are true it's just that we cannot be so dogmatic about one side over the other and i think that we need to have leeway on both sides of the fence of like okay science is subject to change our interpretation of scripture can be subject to change if we study and we apply ourselves to what it's actually saying and this is where i want to get on the topic of the next uh segment yeah absolutely because science and religion or christianity should never conflict i'll say judo judo christian because i mean this is also within a muslim and a judeo christian thing but yeah specifically but yeah i mean but specifically talking about like us christians though we should Science and Christianity should never conflict. And yeah. so we can look at a couple examples uh, and see how that those do not conflict. And this is one thing I want to point out to like the listeners and also, and I, and I know a lot of people would, would give flack to the uh, evolutionary creationist uh, because it is it seems almost anti-God and it seems like it's anti-scripture. But the thing is, though, is that this is where I think that this is where the conversation needs to be had. And this is one thing that I was really nervous about talking about this, is that because it is viewed as a taboo thing, that you're automatically seen as not a Christian. And I think this is where we need to be peaceful about it and have a good conversation about it. And I think me and Mason both have good hearts that they want to bridge the gap between scripture and science and to reach people the best that we can. Because in all reality, and I'm not trying to say that uh, I agree with this because I think that it can reach many people, but a lot of turnoffs to atheists and atheism to Christianity is the, well, there's no way that the Bible is true because it's a six-day thing when all the evidence lies towards a, a millions of billions of years old creation and stuff like that. Let's talk about a scientific side of the Big Bang. And Mason, you've already kind of referred to this uh, to begin with, and that this is kind of like a nasty topic, it seems like, that you automatically, if you think in the Big Bang, is viewed as uh, a man-made science almost. So what what is what should be the Christian view of the Big Bang when it's made mention in the secularism of the world? 
So this is like the number one thing that always gets brought up when people are trying to talk about like anti-Christian science. It's like Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And here's the whole thing behind the Big Bang because atheist scientists, and I believe that's it was two atheists uh, who actually came up with the idea. Um, don't hold me to that, but I f feel like I'm very positive about it. Um, came up with the idea that somehow two parts of matter, I, I don't know if they referred to them as atoms or whatever, but I think they just said two parts of matter collided and somehow sparked and created everything. Now, the only thing that really can go against this and like how I would perceive a creation is they take out God. Mm -hmm. Well, and they also give two parts of matter space without anything putting it there. They, they say they just kind of poofed out of nowhere. Well, who can poof things out of nowhere? Only my God can. Hey, man. Hey. <laughs> but, so, I mean, how I like to imagine creation is God spoke things into existence all the time, and it just happened. So why couldn't creation just been a big bang, you know? Boom, here's light. Boom, here's the planets. Boom, here's the sun. Boom, here's all the animals. I mean, Who's to say God can't do that? Nobody, because then you're limiting his power. But the thing that just really turns the Big Bang away from anything else is the people who defined the theory or, you know, founded it, whatever you want to call it, they took God out of the picture and tried to say things happened without a cause and just kind of, mm -hmm. they can't explain it, but they don't want to say God done it. And that's the only thing that, that really defiles it is just, they take God out of it, and they say, we're not going to give God the credit, but we know something happened. So and that goes back to, uh, I don't think I may mention it before, but one of the, the second uh, scientific philosophy, uh, philosophical arguments is the Kalam argument, is that everything that begins has a cause, right? I mean, that's a logical uh, uh, reasoning. That was premise number one. Premise number two, the universe began to exist. Premise number three, therefore, the universe has a cause. So there had to be a cause to the universe. that It didn't just happen to poof out of ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so there had to be a reason or a cause behind this. And so I think the Christian worldview has a good answer to this question, is that for time, space, and matter to exist, such as space, time, and matter that we exist right now, matter, material things, carbon, nitrogen, whatever, time, a time of from the beginning of whenever to the present time, and space that you have existing gravity and universe going out and, and to forward that you have to have someone that is outside of time that is outside of matter that is outside of space and that describes God quite well that is spaceless timeless and matterless in the sense that he can have any kind of existence that he yeah, he can outside of, uh, exist outside of all boundaries that yes. we that, that what we as humans consider boundaries is because yes. we can't exist outside of all of those well obviously not but there's something that can and it, that's going to be our God um, so Mason, you're talking about uh, when it comes to the Big Bang from a Christian worldview, it's this understanding that even scientists will exist, exist will admit that, uh, yeah, it couldn't just happen, but it did. But we're able to say it couldn't just happen, and it didn't just happen. Someone set this into motion. Uh, so kind of branching off from that, you have this fine-tuned theory that uh, y'all have been teasing a bit that I think we can get into uh, pretty easily, where... It, the concept, if I'm understanding this correctly, is that it's correct. Like, it couldn't just happen because everything is so specifically made 
to cater to ours, uh, ours meaning uh, humans' uh, needs here on this earth. Everything is just so perfectly well-made that we can thrive, that we can exist, and that in itself proves the existence of a great creator that wanted to custom-make a universe for a specific species of individual to exist within. Is that is that correct? Yes. This next thing that we want to talk about is the finely tuned theory in the sense that like the reasons why we will get on board that God is completely in control of creation, that he is involved in it, actively involved, and that he is part of it and he puts himself into it. And so let's talk a little bit about the finely tuned theory. Let's get off of the, the differences, but more find common ground between uh, the two. Because I, I think we need to bridge these gaps between within the church of uh, these two parties. So talking about fine-tuning, I mean, we could talk about all the different things like, you know, how close Earth is to the sun and how we have an atmosphere and how we have, like, the perfect gravity and yada, 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 and all these different things like the moon being perfectly spaced apart. Like, we can go into all of that. But I want to go down to a little bit more of a personal level with, like, all the different organisms. Like, And I'm not just talking about, like, humans. Like, any breathing animal. Can, but let's focus on, but we, we can't focus on humans for a second and just talk about like how we have all of these joints and bones and muscles that, you know, work perfectly to give us the mobility that we have. You know, we're not stick men, you know, or stick bugs, you know, because that's a very sim- simple organism, you know, is a, uh, a stick bug. I mean, it just has very few motions, very few limbs, things like that. But no, we humans have, what is it, 209, 218? Somewhere in there. I'm not counting. It's just like right above 200 something bones, um, all the different organs that we have that work perfectly together, and you can even take it as far as like the blood. You know, you could, you might could get away with like if everybody had like the same blood type and all this other stuff, but we don't. We have positive, we have negatives, we have A, B, A, B, and O. We have the different blood types, so that's given us each different uniqueness. Everybody has a different fingerprint that is unique to their own. Everybody has their own DNA and hair stuff and like that and other things like that. That just makes everyone unique. We're not we're not like clones or anything. While we can't technically mm-hmm. we can't technically do that. But that's not the point. Is that because that's not how we are here naturally? That's not how God designed us. Is everyone is made to be complete. even identical twins have some differences. You know, you talk about like a, an egg splitting in the at birth, not at birth, but in the womb or whatever. They still have some differences. And so you can go into all the different things like that and talk about DNA, and I'll let Tanner take that away. Well, I also want to make a recommendation, quick caveat, is that I would recommend a book called uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made by Dr. Paul Brand. And he takes all these, like, structures of the body, and he goes from, like, DNA to molecules to blood to bone to movement to body motions and basically goes into a detailed sense of like why do they work but then correlates it to scripture uh but it basically says you know we are fine we're fearfully and wonderfully made and it's beautiful and like it's it's kind of a finely tuned theory book but yet it's it's for a common man it's not like one of those things over your head and dr paul brand he is a christian scientist that uh discovered that um the cure for leprosy by the way so Pretty cool dude, but that's a recommendation. So with the finely tuned theory, and I think that's that's it's exactly correct. So I mean, you're a creationist, I'm an evolutionist, and that does not conflict because God finely tuned everything. And so the one thing that I, that I think is beautiful is the DNA, one of the smallest things ever, is that every atom has a nucleus 
of protons and neutrons and a cloud of electrons around it. And when one atom binds with another atom, the electrons interact with each other and hold together to create a molecule. So a proton's mass outweighs electrons by like 2,000 times. And if the ratio was changed just a little bit, just a little bit, the chemicals in the DNA that it, can, that it makes our body and that is basically the building blocks and the code to our system and to our body. And if it was just out, if it was just off just a little bit, then we would not be who we are today, that your person would not be the person that you are, that basically the molecules that hold you together could be almost distorted to where you are constantly deteriorating at a massively rate where your body's not cohesively working together. So even at the very small molecular level as DNA, if it is just off just a little bit by electrons and protons and, 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 and photons, whatever. Neutrons. Neutrons. You know what I meant. Not photons. Something like photon torpedoes or something like that. Anyways, but if the ratio was changed only by a small amount, the stability of common chemicals in the DNA would be compromised and prevent certain building blocks to be dispersed and, and distributed differently. And I think this is where God made something so intelligently designed and was so purposely thought out by a wonderful creator that it could be not by happen chance, that if it was just off just a little bit, that we would, I don't want to say cease to exist, but our existence would be almost different of our reality if that makes any sense like this kind of this concept kind of speaks to me um, you mentioned earlier that one of my passions within scripture is uh, the old law um, and observing its function within the life of a christian and i've said it a few times on this podcast uh, what god did by giving uh, his people in in moses day so many laws to follow he wasn't giving them a bunch of laws that like they had to follow every day in order to uh, be be god's friend it was he gave them tons upon tons upon tons of opportunities to praise him through obedience through all these different laws. So really, he was he was giving them he was going easy on them by giving them so many ways to express their love for him. This is another way that God is giving us incredible opportunities to praise him by acknowledging that like the way that our DNA is, is structured is so complex is so frighteningly specific that if it was just the least bit off reality as we understand it would just be distort, be unrecognizable, be unlivable. And through that, we can go, holy crap, God's a freaking genius. Like that, that's the opportunity here. That's what's to be seen yeah. through this fine-tuned theory, to observe science in a way that expressly glorifies how detail-oriented and how perfectionist and how accomplished as a perfectionist God is. So let me also, I think one thing you're saying that about the laws and stuff like that, how like obviously the Hebrew people and the Israelites could not abide by that law. But the laws of nature, God, all of God's creation gives glory to God's existence. It seems like the laws of nature never bend out of what they're supposed to do out of the laws that they are given. And so I'm thinking, holy crap, what if like, the laws of DNA and the laws of gravity and the laws of the things that are within our observable universe, that they are praising God constantly by, by remaining in their constant state of, of uh, the given law that God designed them to be. And so because atoms and gravity and DNA do not bend out of the law of natural science and the natural of their 
given law, then they are naturally giving praise to their creator by obeying him in that sense. And I'm not saying that gravity has a conscience or nothing like that, or DNA is aware of their surroundings, but yet God's creation does give existence, does God give evidence to God's existence. So let me ask this question. So when we see this and that, that God's uh, fingers are divinely in these things, what about certain mutations and certain things that perceive what about like if DNA and you have different chromosomes and I think that uh, Down syndrome, you have 20... You have an extra one. An extra chromosome uh, versus you uh, over the one that you... I think, was it males have 23 and females have 22? Is that right? No, everyone's 23. Is it just 23? Well, I was thinking yeah. 22. So, yeah, so the Down syndrome has 24 uh, chromosomes. And so how is that finely tuned? That's just a, a, a mutation. Does God not exist or care for that individual that he did, decided not to... Um, intelligently designed this individual because that's a that's a conversation that the atheists uh uh have is that like you know what about all this stuff and all these mutations and all this stuff that's going on how come there's sickness how come there's cancer why is god not divinely tuning all these things versus the things that you're seeing well it just comes pretty much from the downfall of sin from the beginning of adam and eve i mean water roses have thorns on them now they didn't before, at least that's what I believe Genesis tells us. Or maybe we just Does had prick-proof that? thumbs. That would have been pretty dope, too. You know, I kind of wish I'd had those, then I wouldn't have so many splinters now. God, God weakened our thumbs after the fall. That was yeah. a little bit of the fine print that got skipped over. <laughs> but, I mean, it, the downfall of man, a.k.a. when sin entered the picture for humanity, kind of ruined a lot of things. Yeah. And the mutations of organisms is not i believe one of them yeah and a way that i think you could look at it as still being like the goodness of god uh existing through even through those um deficiencies as you might want to call them they're still alive like while we just established that like dna is made in such a specific way that if the slight change happened in this one area then everything could just be messed up and yet when you have something as crazy as a whole extra chromosome still living can still live a good life. I mean, I've seen plenty of videos of uh, people with Down syndrome living a happy life, having a job, like being able to hold it down. Like it, it doesn't stop you from enjoying God's creation. I mean, it does insert some obstacles, but I mean, what person existing in this fallen world doesn't have obstacles doesn't in their have life? An obstacle. Yeah. I mean, heck, they're a lot happier than I am most of the time. Let's be honest here. I mean, we know that Mason's probably the most. Uh, weird out of the DNA is because he's got red hair. I mean, this is a mutation that he has that because, you know, this is true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, buddy, but you're mutated because of your red hair. Well, you know, blue so eyes cool. are a mutation as well. And the same mutation that results in blue eyes also results in your uh, ears being more susceptible to hearing damage. Do you know that primates, humans and monkeys and any kind of uh, uh, primates, that they cannot produce their own vitamin C? Do you know that we share a suspicious amount of DNA with bananas? That is true. We're like one chemical <laughs> off of, of, of bananas and plastic. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, so when it comes to finely tuned theory, I think there's two two other things that I think that are, that are really cool that kind of give evidence that God is, that this world is not no happenstance, that there's building blocks that God placed in creation to show that, hey, this cannot exist by itself, that I placed it here I put this blueprint here 
for life to exist. Another one is gravity. And a lot of people don't even think about it, but like the general theory of relativity by, you know, Einstein, you know, E equals MC squared. Uh, the motion and projection of celestial beings can be predicted by size, speed, and space. That's the definition of it, the layman's terms, because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff with that. But gravity has to be the right force of propelling and pulling and pushing and a lot of things going on. And if it was just a bit stronger, then all the atoms and the things that existed would basically collide together and basically implode. And if it was just a little bit weaker, then they would spread out and disperse and like deteriorate. And so gravity is like a specific amount of push and pull and force that it holds things together. If it's stronger or, or lighter, then reality would cease to exist. And I think that's another way that we can see God within within the small minuscule things such as gravity, which we don't even understand, that he holds things together. Another thing that we can observe I mean, someone that's not even a scientist that, that thinks on, upon these things is the, is the relation between the Earth, Moon, and the Sun. The relationship between uh, these three celestial bodies is at a precise distance and location between each other. Because, I mean, have you never noticed, like, the Moon, the size of the Moon is, like, the same size as the Sun? Like, it's, it's like, basically identical. So when you see the eclipse, like, they basically overlap with each other, and they're almost identical in size. I mean, that's just a, a coincidence, right? But the distance between the Earth, Sun, and the Moon, it correlates with the biological life that we have here on Earth. Because if the Moon did not exist, then tides would not exist. And life on Earth would be vastly different to almost non-existent if tides did not exist and there was no way for uh, uh, biology to, to, to form and to function upon uh, this Earth. And if the Earth was a little bit further away from the sun, it would freeze and life would freeze along with it. If the earth was a little bit closer to the sun, it would burn up to a crisp and become Kentucky Fried Chicken. And there is no life in Kentucky Fried Chicken. So <laughs> it's good taste though. I'm not a fan of it. Mashed potatoes are good though. They are very good. They're I, very good. I, that is my favorite. Yes. But if if the earth is so at, at such a Goldilocks zone that if it was moved anywhere else, and plus you're talking about like the rotation and the the axis and the tilt of the Earth is such a, a, a specific angle that if it was changed just a minuscule uh, portion, that it would just change life altogether. Do you know you know what the degree of Earth is, right? The degree. Yeah, the degree of that Earth. Like it's got a tilt. Uh, yeah. Uh, I want to say like 23, but it's like either 23.4 or 24.3. It's something like that. Yeah. But did you know if we went to like, I think it's above 26 or 27 degrees, we would have like annual ice ages. Yeah. And uh, severe droughts. And just to address right quick, because I have seen uh, on the Internet of all places, so you know it's true. Uh, people like to, to trash talk when when. Christian scientists want to be start talking about oh if the the Earth was just this much further away from the sun than Ice Age if it was this much closer to the sun then uh, everything will burn up and people will say oh that that's stupid because Earth isn't on like a, a perfect circular orbit there is room for play the Moon is also not in a perfect circular orbit there is room for play like when Tanner's talking about like microscopic distances yeah he doesn't literally mean a microscopic distance like yeah there are miles of play at work here but we're talking about like celestial space and celestial yeah. beings which are massively large yeah that... we're talking about things that are already thousands of miles away from everything else so yeah. minuscule you... is a relative term you two do know that the sun's not sitting still too right oh yeah yeah okay. precisely exactly okay. like there's a lot of movement there's a lot of room for play but in the grand scheme of things these are minuscule amounts so just 
just to establish we're we're not that dumb. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. I love this is my butter and bread. Is the ancient biblical science, and I think this is where we we've talked about this before. We talk about uh, de- defining Christianese episode and and understanding the sixty six books observation of of the Bible is what I want to. Is the definition of exegesis and eisegesis. So exegesis, we've, de- we've defined this before in the past. Exegesis is basically you're reading out of the text. You're putting yourself in the shoes of the people that wrote that specific scripture text. Es- eisegesis is basically you're reading into the text that basically you are putting your 21st century mindset and your perspective your perspective and your ideologies inside the text and basically conforming the text to your ideology if that makes any sense so the best way to read scripture is by placing yourself in the shoes of the people by what were they trying to say what were they meaning what were they seeing and so here's the thing the fact about the bible that everyone doesn't deny but a lot of people will ignore is that the Bible is an ancient text. It's an ancient text. And I think, uh, I think I've heard it say that, you know, ancient text is like ancient civilization is from like early recorded history, history from like Mesopotamian era to like the end of the Roman empire. And from like the Roman empire to whenever is more of like an antiquities uh, period of time. So let's just, let's just get that correct. So how did the ancient people of scripture view the earth? What do you think? What do you think the when you learned in Sunday school and you did all of this, how do you think you were taught that the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament viewed the earth? Well, in short, incorrectly. In short, you're correct, yes. Wait, yes. In short, you're correct about the incorrectliness of being taught. Uh, and that's the same thing with me. Like I don't because I think this is just kind of one of those things that it, it'd be kind of hard to, to teach ancient biblical science and the way that they perceived their reality. So let me, let me, let's, let's just I'll go ahead and I'm going to do a little bit of, of historical backgrounds here is that the way that the people viewed the earth was a three tiered earth system. And let me explain this a little bit. So the word earth appears over 2,500 times in the old Testament, the Hebrew for Eris, and never once is it re- referenced to a spherical or round globe. Just to let y'all know they didn't have rockets. But and, flat earthers back then. And in Moses' time, the aliens did not grab them up and say, look at this globe. But Genesis 1, chapter 6, it makes mention of the firm, firmament and what ancient people thought they saw. This is what they thought they saw. And so you got to remember, they didn't have telescopes. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't have spaceships to go and see that there was a globe and stuff like that. So they saw what was their reality, and they assumed things, and God spoke through them through those things and accommodated to that back to that message incident principle. So, and this goes to Psalms chapter 19, verse four, Psalm 104, verse two, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It gives a picture of a tent being casted over the, over the earth. Uh, let me read that real quick. Sorry. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent for them. So, I mean, even within these old, even within these verses, it makes, mention of a firmament, like a tent being placed over a circular, circumferential uh, place, not a globe per se. Um, another thing that makes mention is that the circumferential sea borders of a circular earth. So Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, and in, in Job chapter 26, 7 through 14, but in Proverbs, it makes mention 
I was there when he set the limits of the seas so they would not spread beyond their boundaries, and when we when he marked off the earth's foundation so they had a view that there was borders of like mountain tiers to keep the waters in where the 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 firmament would be placed. So this is not a inscription of a circle as a spherical because it is not, and it would fit in early ancient Mesopotamian beliefs of the earth structure. And the other thing, uh, the earth is immovable. In First Chronicles 16.30, Psalms 93.1, Psalms 96.10, Psalms 104.5, it makes mention the stability of the earth is understood to be firm as a building set on the foundation. And biblical writers often uh, referred to it as such, as a basically immovable object. But as we know today, that the earth rotates, and it also has an orbit around the sun, so the earth is not really immovable, but yet by our perceived perception is that we are solid, that the earth move, moving so fast we don't feel it. But like we we know that we are moving because of the science that we have today. The one that I think that we can really see is the movement of the sun. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 5 and Psalm 19 verse 6, it talks about the sun moving from one side to the other, from the east to the west. And according to Genesis chapter 1, the sun was created and placed in the firmament, and the daily motion of the sun is observed. The way that we observe it, the way that the ancient people observed it, they saw what they saw, observed it, and said that's reality. They saw the sun moving, so they thought that the sun was placed in the firmament and moved. But And, and you see in Joshua chapter 10, and I think this is kind of an interesting story, that the Israelites were fighting in Gibeon, and Joshua asked God to make the sun stop. But if we know what we know now, it was the earth that stopped its rotation or it, st it stopped its orbit or something of that nature, not the sun. Because even though the sun is moving at a, you know, I say, you know, at a at a celestial rate, but it is moving in the, the, the Milky Way galaxy, but it is stationary comparative to the earth. If we look at what reality is today, if we know, understand what they're trying to say then, Joshua and the ancient biblical scientists at that time, their observation that the sun stood still, yes, but today we know that actually the earth stood still. And so we need to understand is that the people in the ancient times had a different science than that we have now, but it evolved. <laughs> science evolved from one thing to another due to the things uh, that they had privy to such as telescopes and microscopes and other evidence and studies and theories and science of knowledge and, and trying to understand what is going on now. So you said it perfectly earlier, Matthew, and I want you to say it again because I cannot, I'm not going to befuddle what you said. Well, before I do, let me play my part of making sense of what is being said yes. when 10 point words get thrown around too much. Um, one, one area that you started just moving like a freight train and you, you said good stuff, but you said it very quickly. So I want to, want to backtrack just a bit to make sure it's parsed correctly uh, when you're talking about the circumferential sea borders uh, on a circular earth the way you described it i don't think it paints a picture in the in the head real well but fortunately you got a nice picture in the notes here that i'm going to try to uh say out and hopefully say it in a way that one can visualize as they're listening to this audio based podcast not a visual medium uh, but imagine a snow globe and that the earth is a flat circle a flat earth uh, within that snow globe. So the area in which you have like buildings or whatever sort of snow globe, I'm just, I'd imagine that everyone listening here has seen a snow globe. The things that are in it, Surely that is the flat earth. And then you have like the water within the snow globe, act like that's the sky. And within that sky, you have the moon, the sun, and the stars. They believe that that functions around that flat earth. Now, throw the snow globe in a bathtub. 
they believe that there was a water surrounding this theoretical snow globe, and those those were the waters above uh, the earth. And then after that water, so above the bathtub, is heaven, the realm of God. Yes. So that's kind of the, the picture being painted there. Because circumferential, I'm sure dictionary definition will make that make sense, but I don't think that's within a bunch of people's well, vocabulary. So. When Moses was writing this, when God was divinely writing this to Moses, this is post-flood. And so when, yeah. when the flood account occurs that God opened up the firmament, this makes sense because I want to read verse 6 of, chapter, of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be a space or firmament between the waters, between the waters above and the waters below. So the waters on the, the, the flat earth into the waters above the space, so the, the, the bathtub. Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And so I think that's a good description of a snow globe within a bathtub. And that's exactly the way they, they perceive, because if you look at the morning sky during the day, you see blue. And so it's like, okay, what's blue here on earth? It's got to be water, so it's got to separate. And water, when it rains, it comes down, so it's just leaking through. Yeah. And it wads away, and God places the stars and the, and the moon and the sun in the firmament of the separation between the waters and uh, our earth. So, I mean, their truth of science is observed. But that does not make it inerrant because the truth of the message is still the truth that God created that certain thing. Like we said before, the vessel is different, but the message is the same. Yeah, so to kind of put a cap on it, when we're talking about this ancient science that by our modern understanding we, we know it is, I mean, it's literally incorrect the way that they believed uh, some things operated within the, the, the heavens and the earth and whatnot. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong, because looking at the Bible with our modern scientific eyes, these things are still possible. Like, we haven't just been blowing smoke through this podcast so far. Like, everything within Scripture still rain, rings true when you compare it to the things that we know now. And it rang just as true to the people that the Bible was being presented to back in the day. It's almost like the Bible is just true, full stop, no matter what your understanding of the world around you is, because it comes from a perfect, correct spirit, God. Yeah, so we talked about how the ancient science and kind of like how they understood things. Well, now we can look at um, things from the Bible with the modern science that we have now and see how they don't conflict at all, that in fact they go hand in hand. Like science and Bible go hand in hand when you allow it to. And so I picked out just three different things or pos possibilities, you know, whatever, uh, from the Bible, and we can apply science to it and make it make sense in both scenarios. Um so first, I would like to look at um, the aquatic fossils that can be found within Mount Everest. And for those that don't know, Mount Everest is the tallest mountain here on Earth. So how in the world can we have fish fossils up in the mountains? Well, we can go back to Genesis and look at the great flood of Noah when every bit of land was underwater for, what was it, right out of year, I think? We don't, we talked about this last. It year. rained for forty days and forty nights, and it stopped 40, raining. But I mean, I I couldn't remember. It's how still, long yeah, it, it rained for forty days and forty nights, but the, but then it stayed, and I can't remember for how long it stayed. But anyway, for a significant amount of time, all of land was underwater, and then what happens when that water starts receding back to normal sea level? Well, I would imagine that some fish are going to get stuck on that land, and so what happens when they dry out and years pass by? Uh, we're going to see some fish bones in the mountains well fish bones in the mountains the bible says there was a flood so science can say okay yeah if there was water there and there's not water there now it would make sense 
Uh, we look at, this is a really big one. I've done this with a, uh, one of my teachers in high school. It was my physics, chemistry, and anatomy teacher all at once. <laughs> and during physics, we actually looked at the Red Sea crossing uh, when Moses led the Israel people across the Red Sea. There is, and I have this great website where people have done all of the numbers and stuff. I was actually able to find all the real numbers, and I've talked about this before. Do those equations that I see on your screen make sense to you? To me, yes. Oh, my word. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is what happens when you become an This engineer. is why I dropped out. Yeah. <laughs> this, is why I, this is why I switched majors. <laughs> um, we have a Red Sea crossing. So what happens is we, can able, we are able to take uh, some things that happen with uh, wind, uh, coming across the mountain ranges, coming down from the Red Sea and stuff like that. But there is actually a specific spot on the Red Sea that is called... The Suez, S-U-E-Z, Gulf. But in this kind of, or in this Gulf, it is in the northwest or northeast. I believe it's the northeast, but either way, it's one of the northern cardinal directions of the Red Sea. Still part of the Red Sea, but you know, it's just one of those sections that has its own name. Well, within this Gulf, there is actually a mud flat that is four kilometers long and about five kilometers wide. So you take that roughly, um, I think it's right, right under three miles long, uh, right at three and a half miles wide. So it's a pretty big uh, mud strip. And I believe that they said it was around 50 feet deep. And this is actually where you can find some chariot wheels, femur bones, skulls, and other things like that at the bottom. I wonder what that's from. Hmm. It could be, I don't know, this is just a theory, where the waters came back and hit the Egyptians, but I don't know, that might just be a shot in the dark. But we can see how science can prove this, because we know about you know Moses striking his rod on the ground and whatever, and the waters parted. We were like, well, that's impossible. Well, a lot of things Jesus done was impossible because he was God, but this, we can actually prove what happens. There was a study that was done, and moral of the story, I won't go into all the equations because, like Matthew said, he's singing them and he's just, yeah. It'd take a whole episode just to pronounce one of them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, moral of the story, all answers uh, given. With winds coming from the east or blowing to the east, eastern winds of 28 miles, or not 28, 28 meters per second, not miles per second, 28 meters per second converted over to miles per hour, which is what us Americans like to use. 62.6 miles per hour winds will expose that mud flat. Now, 62 mile an hour winds, while that is very strong winds, I believe that is only a third of what is required to be a hurricane. I believe you have to reach miles of 150 to reach hurricane status. So, while that is very strong winds, it's still just a third of a hurricane will open up this entire mud flat, literally split it, like as the Bible says, and you can walk through. Now we can take a little bit of, you know, God miracles and say, well, how did they not sink in the mud? Well, we can say he can solidify the ground or whatever. But we can look at the Red Sea crossing and say, yeah, that can happen. But it has to work perfectly. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. It's like people would say, like people that like, uh, 
people would say, well, I mean, see, it's a natural occurrence. It's not a miracle. I think it's a miracle that the timing was perfect that the people of yeah. Israel at, at that time were at that location while they were being hounded by the Egyptians. It's like, oh, it happenstance that there had to be like 60-mile-hour yeah. winds floating and push, pushing and allowing this bank to arise. Yeah. Oh, happenstance. There was a God right there that knew exactly where they were at the right time to get them where they needed to be. And if this was just something that just kind of happened on a regular basis, we would hear about it a whole lot more often. But that's the thing. It doesn't just happen. It can happen with when someone does it, when God does it. When God sends those winds down the mountains, they're going to pick up speed. They're going to hit that water. That water's going to split open. But, of course, how was it just so conveniently timed? Because there was a greater yep. being orchestrating it all. That's the beauty of getting to see both sides of it. And I like to look at this one, and I know you two might have differing opinions of it, but we can look at it and say that it was possible. We look over in the New Testament now at Jesus, and it says where his sweat became as, as great drops of blood. And you're like, well, that doesn't say he's necessarily bleeding. Well, no, it doesn't necessarily say that he's bleeding. But if we look at the medical term hematohydrosis, that is a real medical term that says one may start suffering from, uh, you know, sweating of blood under extreme levels of stress. Mm -hmm. And with Jesus being 100% human as well as God, I would say knowing that his God tingling were senses and he could see the future and... <laughs> Knew, knew what was going to happen to him, that the man side was probably a little stressed out. Yeah, that's one thing I hate about these pictures of, of Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, of very serene and calm. Just down on his but knees. But I'm going to bet together. you money that Jesus is freaking stressed out where he's bleeding, where he's sweating blood. He is so freaking stressed, and I would say he's scared. Yes, he's absolutely. Fearful. And so to say, like, oh, no, it doesn't say that he is sweating, but it's just like, well, it doesn't matter. To say that it was possible, yeah. It could have happened. And here's the thing is like Jesus was under a lot of stress. And for this medical term to happen, all it says is one must be under extreme stress. Jesus knew knew when, where, and how he was about to die. I would say that would stress so some point to, out. So to me, that gives evidence that it was legit for the fact that they probably – Wherever, I can't remember exactly where, where that is in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, but wherever that is, I'm pretty sure whoever the writer is is not. It's probably going to be Dagnum Luke, the physician of all things. Uh, they probably had no idea what hema, hematohydrosis mm -hmm. is, what causes it. And so they're probably thinking, well, that just happened, so it's Jesus, so it's the truth. But now we know due to science uh, that it has evolved that we know what that is and what causes it, and it correlates with what reality is And it is correlates with what Scripture said. Yeah. And so to say you put two and two together, we're going to get four. Yeah. And I, I just, to me, I love going through Scripture, and I, this is probably about the only thing I really missed from high school <laughs> was having these conversations uh, with some of these teachers that were able to just, you know, take on their free time outside of class and uh, kind of dive into some of these things. Like uh, we also done some numbers that looked very similar to this, Matthew, about figuring out how much weight was on each of Jesus' arms when he was on the cross. Mm -hmm. And just little things like that and seeing, wow, Jesus suffered a lot. Mm -hmm. He done it for us. He's a pretty cool guy. Yeah. So here's my, here's my closing statement in the sense of the grand scheme of this whole conversation is that the big question is evolution anti-God. And I know that me and Mason are on two different sides of the fence, but yet here's where... 
the side of the fence where we can meet common ground and we can break that fence down and shake hands and say we can worship the same God because guess what? We worship the same God. My creator is the same creator that I've worshipped from my view from a creationism to evolutionary stance. But so here's one thing I don't like it. I, and I've heard this conver- and I've heard this statement made mention it. I know I, I get where he's coming from, but I disagree with it in the long term. But Ken him he made the con- he made the statement that our foundation of Christianity is based upon creation. And that is I understand where he's coming from, but that is false because we know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that Christ is the foundation that we can root everything back to and say, this is what I stand on. Evolution, if it's if it's true, if it's false, if creation, if it's true, if it's false, it doesn't matter. As long as Christ is true, for I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one can come to the Father but by me. We, if we can relate to Christ himself, then nothing else really it's, it's, it's tertiary. It, it's secondary to the primary source of Christ. So Christ is the foundation that I lay my trust and my foundation on. And so here's where I think that so many Christians will give evolutionary creationists harsh criticism uh, to the point of placing labels of progressive Christianity and say that we don't believe in, 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 in the inerrancy of Scripture. And that is completely false, that we believe that God is sovereign, that, that He is the creator of all things, and His Word is inerrant. And I know that I've said this before in this whole Dagon podcast, but yet this is like a thing that I think if is taboo in the in the Christian community of a Christian believing in evolution. I'm just trying to bridge a gap between these conversations that we can love God just as much as 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 a creationist versus an evolutionist, if that makes any sense. And so, and that's the whole thing, the whole purpose that we believe in in in. in God the Creator, that He created all things, and it was good, and that we were made in the image of God, and that Jesus is the Son of God to redeem the fallenness of man, and that it is going to be wonderfully recreated at His return. And I think that's where we can find common ground, is that when Jesus does say that we can find commonality through the foundation of Christ, not creation. And this is one thing that we probably should have said at the very beginning, that this is not milk in a Christian walk. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the point of this podcast, though, to be fair. Exactly. We, so, we don't talk about the milk. This is, I think this conversation only needs to happen within a mature Christian setting. A, Christ, a Christian walk that is not weak. And because I think that what ends up happening is that if you have a Christian that is, is, is very still in the milk, that doesn't understand what's going on, and is very weak in the faith, and you talk about evolution, or you talk about these things, and it comes almost difficult and muddy water, then they can almost come to the point of like, well, then it's not true, because it seems like the flat Earth or the or the the the, the three tiered Earth system, that's not reality. The reality is that we are a globe that circulates around the 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 sun, so they're lying. But you got to understand the full context of what was going on. Well, Jesus was 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 bleeding the Red Sea. That couldn't have never happened. But if you understand the full context of things, this is meat stuff. This is like fine dining, five star, hard to chew stuff that I think that you need to be careful to have a conversation with. And I think this is where I feel safe to have a conversation with because, to be honest, if 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 you didn't want to listen, you probably already turned this uh, turned it off by now. But this is where I think that we can foster conversations over difficult topics such as evolution and creationism. And I think that we need to be careful and not ostracize Christians for viewing a interpretation differently 
but yet of how God does things. Because God does things differently, you know? I mean, God works differently in America than he does in in, in, in Haiti and China. So we need to understand that God is still sovereign over all things. And that's one thing I'm trying to bridge the gap between the conversation between these two parties. So in very, very brief parting thoughts, because I don't think there's any way that we could efficiently cap off this monolith of an episode. Science is cool because science exists because God and God is cool. So if you love God, by extension, you love science, whether you're aware of it or not. So how about you take a step out on faith and figure out why science and Christianity can coexist instead of being scared of big words. So with that, I bid you adieu, and Tanner bids you... Peace out.